Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 138, Captain and Commander. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. If you are new to the show, we bring in NASA experts to talk about all the different parts of our space agency. And sometimes we get lucky enough to bring in astronauts to talk about their story. So today, we're going to talk with Chris Cassidy. He's a U.S. astronaut who is about to launch to the International Space Station this April 2020 for his third space flight. His first being on the space shuttle for STS-127 in 2009 that delivered the final components of the Japanese lab and finished its uh, construction on the space station, and for Expeditions 35 and 36 for a long-duration mission. We talked about his education, studying math and ocean engineering, his experience in the U.S. military as a Navy SEAL, his previous space flight experience on the space shuttle and space station, and his expectations for this next long-duration stay while he'll serve as commander of the International Space Station. So, with no further delay, let's go light speed and jump right ahead to our talk with Captain Chris Cassidy. Enjoy. T-minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Ms. Cassidy, thanks so much for coming on the podcast with me today. Absolutely, thanks. I really want to dive into your story starting from the very beginning. I was looking for where you're from. I think you're like a lot of astronauts where you have a hometown, but you're not, you don't have one place where you were your whole life. Uh, I, I was born in Salem, Massachusetts, but when I was a young boy, we moved to Maine and, and uh I spent all my formative years in, in York, Maine, so that's my definitely my hometown. That is your hometown. What's York, Maine like? What do people not York, know about Maine, that? York, Maine is a, a kind of quiet seaside town not far up the coast of, um, from Boston, about an hour, hour and 15 minutes north of, north of Boston in the southern corner of, of Maine. Uh, wintertime, not a huge population. In the summertime, a, a huge amount of tourists and vacationers. So it was a great place to grow up. Uh, plenty of work. I mowed lawns. I worked in restaurants and in the summers. And and uh, uh, and then in the in the fall, when those people all left, school started. And you, you, it was small enough of a school you could play any sport you wanted to all year round. Unlike bigger schools here in Texas, where you kind of have to pick a a sport and stick to it, but I, I enjoyed growing up in Maine very, very much. I feel like a lot of astronauts come from small towns. I think it's actually really interesting that you're from a small town in Maine, and then when you go up to the International Space Station, you'll be greeted by a fellow astronaut from Maine, right, uh, exactly. Jessica Meir, Caribou, Maine. Yep. We, we, she and I have talked quite a bit about it. We're excited to get up there, <laughs> and I think we'll have some uh, PAO events with, with different places around the state, but we're, we're looking forward to it. Wonderful. I'm very much looking forward to that. Now, in terms of what interested you as a kid, did you have particular interests or hobbies as a kid that may have inspired your career going forward? Uh, nothing super out of the ordinary. I, I, I love sports, and I was always doing some kind of sport thing as a kid. Whatever season it was was my favorite sport. I played <laughs> football and basketball and baseball and uh, um, a little bit of hockey I played when I was real young. Uh, so, so that just occupied most most of my time. My brother and I were, were both think the same way. So we were always throwing a ball around and um, and that that sort of thing. Um, I I liked school, particularly math, but it wasn't anything that uh, that drove me. It was really sports that 
that drove me. I know physical fitness is one of those key elements of your story. And we'll get to this later, you becoming a Navy SEAL, but you've also completed an Ironman triathlon, which is, I looked it up, it's insane. I don't know how a person can do that. <laughs> it seems like it's something that's very important in your life, physical fitness. Physical fitness is important for me. And um, uh, I, I like a challenge too, you know, and, and um, I don't think I want to go run um, full distance Ironman triathlons every every day <laughs> or every week, but uh, knowing that I could grind through one was was very satisfying to me. Um, and just being healthy and fit is important to me. Yeah, it seems like it's also this idea of maybe setting a goal and then really pushing yourself to meet that goal. Mm hmm. Exactly. Okay. Um, now. You said math was an interest to you. Was that something you were naturally good at or maybe something that was kind of like physical fitness where you're pushing yourself to truly understand it? No, I think I just kind of fell. My my brain is just wired that way for math. I, mm -hmm. I, I always liked it. I always liked doing, fidgeting with numbers or kind of calculating things. And, and later when I got on to um, more advanced studies, um, applying those numbers to equations and trying to understand the world around me um, was something that, that I liked to, to dabble in. I never really enjoyed writing about those concepts. Writing was hard <laughs> for me. In fact, I was a horrible speller. And I still am a horrible speller. Uh, I, I rely very heavily on the little red squiggly line in <laughs> Microsoft Word, but um, uh, math was always something that came natural to me. So was, I know math, definitely this, this idea of, of a STEM, STEM field, was space at all something you were interested in as a kid, or maybe that came a little bit later? It definitely came later. Okay. I, the only thing I recall even thinking about space was um, my sophomore year, I guess, in high school, um, walking through the cafeteria and seeing the TV, somebody had wheeled the TV in when the Challenger um, explosion happened oh. and I remember seeing that and stopping like everybody else in the cafeteria and watching and thinking about it and uh, um, but I had could not tell you who an astronaut was at that time I couldn't have told you when the next shuttle was going I couldn't even have named what the names of the shuttles were um, it was not anything on my radar screen space and uh, and then it wasn't until a little bit later I was in my Navy career when when I learned about it, I met Bill Shepard and um, understood what it meant to be an astronaut, at least what I thought at the time, yeah. and, uh, and understood the process on how to become one, that, I, that it, um, I got a little motivated to try. Interesting. So I know, I mean, you mentioned, you mentioned uh, military. Was that something that was maybe something that was of interest to you in your earlier childhood career or uh, high school? So when, um, when I was in high school, we didn't have the internet, and we had these uh, uh, books in the guidance counselor's office that were really thick, like these encyclopedias of colleges. And you'd, I remember you'd take in your free time, and you'd go down there, and you'd flip through these 800,000-page books on all the colleges in the country. And I got to the page of the Naval Academy, and I was really captivated by the buildings and the people in uniform and just how it looked and it the the whole thing looked appealing to me and i i sent away for a brochure i got more information about it and in reading all that i could consume i was just felt like wow this is a place 
for me. I can see myself there. I'm super excited to go there. Um, and I want to do that. And this was, and, and then I, I read even more and it said, you don't have to pay anything to come here. <laughs> you just have to pay in service to your nation, which I didn't even know what that meant, but I was fine with it. Whatever that pay with service to your nation meant, I was cool with it. And, uh, and so that set me off on the path to try to get to the Naval Academy. It's a whole nother story on, on how I ended up um, arriving there. Uh, but that was a critical point for me when I realized that that's yeah. where I wanted to send college. Well, let's let's dive into that story of you actually mm-hmm. pursuing the Naval Academy. It seems like something about it piqued your interest, but the you, your pursuit of it is quite interesting. Yeah, the the um, the academy has a really good support network. Uh, once you tap into it, in all service academies, I'm familiar familiar with the Naval Academy, but the other service academies are the same where they, you can have what the Navy calls a blue and gold officer, which is an alumni who can help you with the process. And the process is kind of twofold. You have to get applied to the academy itself, just like a college, and be accepted to the, to the um, service academy. And you also have to have a congressional or uh, a nomination from your senator or congressman. And that was the part that I learned about and I pursued and was able to get. But unbeknownst to me, uh, and the guidance I got from the congressional staff office was, we send everything for you to the Naval Academy. You don't have to do a thing. Um, it's all handled from here, here being their office. Mm. And uh, I, me, 18-year-old guy, and I see a person of authority telling me something, and they, they seem like very sure. So I just believed it. And, um, and a few months later, when I anticipated and my other... Um, high school classmates were getting uh, answers back from colleges, and I was getting answers from other colleges, not the Naval Academy, that um, I didn't hear anything from them. And and so I made a phone call, found out that there was no paperwork on me in their file system. They didn't even know who I was, didn't have my Social Security number, anything. And uh, I went there with my friend who was, his dad was going from Maine to to Washington, which is like an eight or nine hour drive. And he was going for a business trip and my friend and I accompanied his father. And, and from Washington, DC, I drove over to Annapolis about an hour away and, and um, went to the admissions office. And I was, got put in, in front of one of the admissions counselors there, a Marine Corps officer. And, and he told me that he, he listened to my story and, and uh, kind of nodded a little bit and said, okay, I'll get back to you. And then later that next week when I was back in school, I got a phone call where uh, it was him on the line and said, I can get you into the Naval Academy Prep School. Are you interested in going? And I said, absolutely, yes, sir. Sign me up. And, uh, and that's how I ended up at the Navy Prep School, which is a, a one-year program mostly for recruited athletes. I wasn't a re- recruited athlete or, or, or um, somebody that they see potential in that they want to get a little more academic uh, preparation on. And it was a perfect situation for me. I was a young 18-year-old guy. I went there, had one year of the military environment as well as the academic environment. And then by, because when I got to my freshman year at Navy, all of those things were already part of me. I wasn't learning the military system as the same time I was learning how to be a student. Mm. And, uh, and so it just came very natural. And that allowed me to be very successful my first year. And 
and and then continue that success through through the four years there there. So, if that Marine Corps officer had not had belief in me and 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 given me the chance, I wouldn't have ended up at the Naval Academy, which would is a cycle of things that wouldn't have happened to, including you and I sitting here for this interview about a space flight. Yeah, that's right. And uh, it seems like it was partially, yes, his work and, and, and his effort to actually get you in, but it was a little bit of your relentless pursuit. You went from not even having an application and no one even knowing who you, wa- who you were to driving down and going face-to-face and saying, hey, I, st- I really want this. This is something that's very important to me. And I think that's a... I- I don't know if I learned that or if it's just part of me, but is to always think about, okay, well, it doesn't matter how I got here, but these are the circumstances that I'm in. Hmm. How do I, what's the solution? What's the path forward? Make incremental baby steps in getting to where you want to go. And, and each time recollect the information and get talk to more people and, and just kind of um, pursue things that way. Ultimately, nobody has more interest in your success than you do, <laughs> and I think that was one of the lessons I learned through that whole process. Wonderful. Now, you said you had a, you had a head start when it came to the Naval, Naval Academy because of the prep school, so you kind of knew the way of the land, and this was where you were studying math? Uh, I was a math major you at the math Naval Academy, yeah. Okay, and what, what, uh, where did it lead to your, your career next? So um, all the service academies, you after you spend your four years in academic environment, you then uh, get a commission in whatever service you are. For me, it was the Navy. And, and within the Navy, you can do lots of different things. You can be on a ship. You can be on a submarine. You can fly airplanes. Um, you can be a CB, um, a supply officer, a SEAL, a explosive ordnance. There's like lots and lots of different communities in in the Navy. Mm-hmm. Um, I was intrigued by the SEAL teams just by some of the mentors that were stationed at the Naval Academy. Mm-hmm. Uh, in high school, I had no idea what a SEAL was. A totally different time than now. Like now, you can't watch a news talk show without some former Special Forces person who, who has their opinion or books all over the place about SEALs and every raid that has happened has somebody writing about it completely different time in the 1980s you know it wasn't anything that anybody knew about including myself uh, so when i arrived in annapolis is when i first saw when i uh, a seal and i learned what they do and i thought oh i like the water i like to do physical stuff it sounds kind of cool maybe i can do it and uh, so that's what led me to uh the seal seal training what I like about your story so far is a lot of these these key pivotal moments in your story leading up to, and, and we're, we're just getting into the SEAL part, it seems like a lot of people start with, with dreams or, or just some something they read or something they see and they actively pursue it. It seems like you get to a point where you're, you're looking forward to what should I do next? And then some opportunity or something comes up. Like, for example, you said SEAL mentors, maybe some, someone you talked to, you didn't know where you're going in this Naval Academy, but you maybe talk to just the right person that influenced your career and you say, that's it, that's what I'm doing now. And you pursue that going forward. I like that about your story. It seems like it's, uh, it's, it's these, these, it's not so much a well-planned out thing or pursuing a dream. It's just you're, you're, you're jumping on opportunities. And figuring out what's required to get to the next step and say, okay, I'll do those couple things and see if, if the opportunity is still there. Uh, but at least let other people tell me no instead of me telling me no. Yeah. So what qualities and, and, and what about you had to change or what did you learn in your time as a Navy SEAL? 
learned lots of things. Yeah. I, I uh, learned first and foremost that um, difficult situations are not accomplished by individuals. They're accomplished by teamwork, camaraderie, group, grit, and uh, and equally so that um, negativity in that teamwork is not helpful. Not a whole lot of examples of that in my in my time in the SEAL teams, but um, you, I I can remember a few times where some in SEAL training where somebody got down and they can you can feel the momentum bringing everybody down i mean this we're talking right now on a monday and just the last couple of days was was a um, nfl playoff football and they have this thing called momentum in sports and and you can tell when a negative play happens a blocked punt or an interception it swings and it just kind of gets this wave of of negative momentum on that team and the other guys capitalize on it and i think wow. the same thing is true in small units where, uh, or even just business or whatever. You, somebody can can bring swing the momentum in a negative way or you're on a space mission and they, you get the phone call that you have to stay an extra three weeks and that's a momentum shift. And and the the, the mark, one of the things I learned in the SEAL teams is the, the mark of a, a really um, good leadership and a good team is you can overcome those just with everybody jumping on, jumping on it. And uh, uh, one of the guys in my SEAL platoon used to say, this is a blank sandwich and we all got to take a bite of it. You know, mm. let's share, distribute it amongst all of us and it won't be so bad. Yeah. And it, it sounds like a very powerful thing that is required to overcome because you said just negativity. You know, we talk about it a lot just in our own lives, but when you're talking about a team having to accomplish a mission or a goal, having negativity swing the course of, you said even in a football game, that could swing the course, the shift of a football game, and then next thing you know, the enemy, the opposing team is taking advantage of that. Really important to, to keep away that negativity. I'm sure, and we can talk about this later whenever we get to some of your space flight experience, it's something that you've you've taken with you going forward. Yeah, I mean, all of us uh, as astronauts, we strive to not be the ones that cause the mission to not go well. In other words, we don't want to make mistakes. We don't want to be er make errors. We want to execute the plan that the um, the team delivers to us. But in, we're all human, mm -hmm. astronauts too, and we make mistakes. And any one of us had on, on a mission has has made a mistake. Maybe minor. Maybe you put the your blood sample in the wrong drawer of the freezer, and then three months later to go get it, you, you can't find your blood because it's in the opposite freezer. Or maybe it's bigger where you open the valve to to space and you start dumping out air and you lo lose some air. I mean, mm -hmm. um, it, I don't want to think about the ones that are that are harmful to people, but we don't want to make any of those mistakes. And, and when you make them, you have to just forget about it in a way. You know, you don't want to totally forget so that you make it the same one, but you can't dwell on it. You got to move forward and darn it. And that's about as far as you can go and then move on and, and just not make any more. That's right. Learn from it. That's 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 kind of what you're saying yeah. is not not to dwell on it, but to look at, OK, now kind of like what you were saying, 
this is my situation now. Yeah. What can I do to fix it going what can forward? Can I go forward? With? Yeah. yeah. So, so you're, you, we talked about your experience uh, and, and lessons learned from being on the SEAL team. What was next for you after SEAL? Um, during one of my uh, SEAL deployments, I had an application pending to be an astronaut. Hmm. Uh, actually, back up one um, real quickly. I had applied previous time, which was, would have been for the astronaut class of 2000, and I did not get selected. I did not get an interview. Um, in hindsight, I, I was in graduate school, but I didn't have a graduate degree, and I had less leadership experience in the, in the SEAL teams. Four years later, which was the class I was selected in 2004, I had completed a master's degree. I had more leadership experience, and it was after September 11th, so the nation was in that conflict, and I had been part mm -hmm. of it. So I think that was all. That all contributed to me being a more well-rounded applicant. So that was the next thing, and I was, I, I, the astronaut interview process is long. I had my interview in Houston in September, and the next week I left for a six-month deployment to Afghanistan. Uh, so the whole time I was in Afghanistan, I was wondering what was the status of my application. And it's not like a, um, uh, there's no website that says you're this far along in the process or your application is now being reviewed by the chief astronaut. <laughs> that, that doesn't happen. So you kind of don't know where you stand in the process. Um, but I had told the selection office that I was really unreachable by phone mm -hmm. in a reliable way. So if you needed to talk to me, send me an email for a day or two later to talk to give you a call and I will call. And so I received such an email from this guy, a gentleman named Dwayne Ross, who was the selection committee chair, and uh, and he said, call the office at on Monday at noon or whatever. Well, it just so happened that that weekend I, I was the end of our six-month deployment and I had arrived back in my house in, in Norfolk, Virginia, and uh, so I was actually called from my home in Virginia on that appointed time while I was going to call and the clock was ticking 11.57, 11.58, and then the phone rang. And it was a Houston telephone number and I answered and, and it was Kent Rominger who was the chief astronaut at the time asking me if I wanted to be an astronaut. And so that was a super cool time, super cool <laughs> phone call, I'll never forget it. And another one of those things where it sets your life in a different path. Wow, it seems like, so, so going back, taking a step back, it seems like astronaut became very much a possibility while you were still, while you were still a, a SEAL. It did, and and um, like I said, I had that interview, heard nothing except for um, maybe in the fall, late fall, closer to Christmas or whatever of that of that year. September was my interview. Um, the FBI came knocking on the door of the little old lady who lived next door to us. And they, um, we didn't know this, but then a week later, the FBI, the little old lady came out as my uh, my wife was mowing the lawn, and and she came up to her and said, the FBI was here asking questions about Chris's background, and that was a clue, to, the very first clue that I had made it kind of farther along in the process that NASA was interested in me enough to spend the resources to have a, have an interview and. Um, so, yeah, that was the first clue I had that <laughs> there was a hope. Wow. 
So what made you want to pursue sending your application in the first place? Uh, it was really nothing that I, I felt like I wouldn't be a complete person if I didn't get selected as an astronaut. I was very happy in my job in the SEAL teams. I loved it. Um, and, but I remember thinking, well, that would be super cool. I would really enjoy going to space. I mean, of course, there's a whole lot more to the job as an astronaut, but you don't know that when you're applying. You just see people in a spacesuit riding a rocket or going to an EVA. I thought, that would be really awesome. I would love to, to do that. Why, why don't I try? And that's and again, I mentioned it earlier in this podcast, I met Bill Shepard and, mm. and remember thinking to myself, he went to the Naval Academy and went to MIT, and so have I. So maybe this is something that's of interest to NASA, so why don't I try? And that's all it was. Why don't I try and see where it gets, see where it leads. Another moment in your story of yep. finding an opportunity and capitalizing mm -hmm. on it. Um, so so you, you, got, you got that wonderful call in, in Norfolk, Virginia. Um, talk about coming to NASA, some of your first days, first impressions. It's a little bit different from, from being a Navy SEAL, I'm assuming. Yep. I, ironically, I was move, the, in the Navy, you move every couple of years. You change your duty stations, and, and uh, I was set to move that summer anyway. So it was really a matter of if our household goods were being shipped to California or to or somewhere else, and we revectored the household goods to Houston, mm -hmm. and uh, it showed up showed up here. Um, I remember it's kind of funny. My son was little; he was maybe five or six years old, and um, I came home on like the second day of work, and he came running up to me and said, "Dad, did you go to the moon today?" And it just made me laugh so hard because he was so sincere and thought that um, maybe that was a chance that I could have gone to the moon on a Tuesday. But <laughs> I was really just getting my badge and finding out where the bathroom is and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Oh, uh, not today. Maybe not, tomorrow. Not today. Maybe check with me on Thursday. Mm -hmm. All right. So, so, um, uh, Let's go to let's jump ahead to your first space flight. I know you flew in 2009 on STS-127 on the space shuttle. What was that like? Um, so that was my first mission, and it's different. You know, each mission as you gain more experience is different. The first one, you're kind of wide-eyed and taking it all in, and every single class you don't know is this the most important thing I'm being told, or is this something I don't really have to put in the forefront of my memory um, and, and you're just soaking it all in the whole training process you rely heavily on the experienced people um, and and I was all of all of that uh, nothing drastically sticks out from my preparation in my memory about the preparation other than um, we had five spacewalks on our mission so we mm -hmm. spent quite a bit of time out at the NBL as as a crew um, we, our crew has the dubious honor of, I believe, having the most launch delays or tied or something. Oh. We did not launch until the sixth attempt. Wow. And uh, which sounds, it's hard to appreciate what that means just sitting here talking over this podcast. But um, think about six days thinking that you're waking up and you're going to go to bed that night in space and it not happening. Um, and what that means to your launch guests, you know, they're all there. You have 250 launch guests at the beginning. By the time I launched, I think I had 11. 
uh, everybody had to go on to their normal lives and back yeah. to back to work or whatever. Um, so it that part was 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 uh, all part of the process, and then the mission was was uh, a whirlwind. Two weeks of a space shuttle goes by so fast, you're busy, 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 and then you go to bed and you get up and you do it all again. Before you know it, it's halfway through, and before you know it, you're landing, and then. And then somebody puts together a video of what you did, and and you go tell people about it, and you and you watch the video and go, oh yeah, I guess I was there. I don't remember that, but I guess I was there because you got me on video. Um, but just a fun experience. Uh, great crew, great crewmates, great friends. Um, I think our when we arrived, we were the first time that 13 people had been on the space station. There was a crew of six, and then we brought our seven from the shuttle. So. Um, just neat times. Yeah, sounds crowded. It was. Um, so, how does that differ from your next space flight, which was long duration on the space station with a few less people? Yeah. Uh, so, in we were still. Uh, so on my my next mission, I flew on a Soyuz, three person crew. I had two uh, cosmonaut crewmates, Pavel Vinogradov, Sasha Masurkin. Uh, a shuttle launch, all the preparation is here in Houston. You travel to Florida a few times, but in general, you're always in Houston for training, and you have seven people. You're all reading American-made checklists in English and talking to people in Houston. Uh, on the Soyuz, the checklists are all in Russian. It's a very small capsule, uh, and we're talking Russian inside the capsule, and we're speaking on the radio to the Russian flight control team, and and so all of those things were drastically different. Uh, you, I was the the lead of the U.S. side of the space station, so I felt a, a lot of more, a great deal more responsibility of maintaining and running the space station. And when I arrived, Tom Marshburn and Chris Hadfield were there, and uh, I could lean on their experience because they they were on the tail end of, of their six months when I got there and mm -hmm. I, I relied on on their experience to get me up to speed but that was only for I forget seven weeks or something like that at most two months and um, and then they left and 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 those duties fell on me and I, I remember feeling um, a lot of satisfaction like wow I I understand this space station. I really can hear the noises and understand if it's a good noise or a funny noise. And uh, I, I liked it a lot. And then Karen and Luca arrived and together as a crew, we, we uh, got them up to speed. And then and the three of us, I think, did, did a, a, a pretty satisfying job. At least we felt we did for the rest of the, of the mission. So, so the short answer to your question is, the shuttle, I felt I was a new guy and wide-eyed and listening to others. My next mission, I felt this um, uh, this sense of pride that I was in a position to to understand all of the space station. Do you feel like because of that experience, particularly this last one of, of feeling that sense of experience, um, do you feel even more ready now going into this next one? This next one's even more different. Like I, I've I've come off come off of a couple of years in management position as a chief astronaut, and now I've been in training again uh, for the last few years. And uh, the space station is runs really well and does a lot of science now that even more than we did 
back seven seven years ago. So um, I'm I'm excited to experience what what it's like to just almost all be about science and, and research. So yeah, every mission's different because the, you're different, your crew complement is different, the tasks that you do are different. So so it'll just be a different experience. Along the lines of different experiences, I know you've um, had different roles on the ground here at NASA, one of them being the chief of the astronaut office. Can you tell me about what you learned from maybe some of the other chief astronauts and, and what you what values you put forward when you were chief? Um, so I took over from as chief from Bob Behnken, mm-hmm. and he took over from Peggy Whitson. And Peggy was in training to, to fly on her last flight, and Bob left the office to begin preparation for a commercial crew. So when I became chief, I had two former chiefs that work, quote, worked for me, <laughs> um, which is quite different If in the military where my background is. If the commanding officer turns over to the new commanding officer, the old one leaves and goes to some other job. It'd be unheard of, and it just wouldn't happen for the old commanding officer to just fold back and be a member of the ranks in the unit. Interesting. Uh, so it was not something that I was I was used to, but I realized that um, uh, we have a mature uh, group of people in the astronaut office, and it's, the ego is not there to to feel like oh you can't boss you're not the boss of me kind of thing. Not at all. It's very helpful. Everybody's out to make the office better, and I was really lucky to have Peggy and Bob working together with me, and and um, there's. It, it's kind of cool that there's a good chance that I could be in space with Bob, um, and he and Doug Hurley are going to be on um, the test flight of, of, of SpaceX. Interesting side note, my first flight was with Doug Hurley on uh, the, the shuttle. My mm-hmm. second flight was with Karen Nyberg, of course, their husband and wife. Mm-hmm. And uh, and now my third flight could be with, with Doug again. So I was joking <laughs> with them recently about it's we alternate uh, – I alternate members of their family that I fly in space with, and it's Doug's turn now. Yeah, you say you say every sp- space flight's different. As you were going through all of your space flight uh, experience, and you say this up, this next one coming up is probably going to be different. That's one of the key different elements right there. Is is now we're talking about you? T- you, you talked about training in Houston for the shuttle. You talked about training in Houston with everything was in English and you know you're 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 local to the United States. You have to do you have to go to Russia to to launch on the Soyuz. Tell me about what this means for commercial crew. You say you may, you might even see some of your crewmates up on the space station uh launching on on American vehicles. It's a little bit different this time. Uh what is what does that mean to you? Uh the whole commercial crew thing. Mm-hmm. Uh before I dive into that real quick, I also oh, yeah. I've never been in space without Tom Marshburn, so I, I won't know what to do without waking up and seeing <laughs> That's true, see, he was on shuttle was and on you shuttle. saw him on thirty five. Yeah, exactly. So but uh in all seriousness to to answer your question, the the commercial crew thing I I think is just a, an exciting time for our nation. You know, it, we're not launching people from Florida right now mm-hmm. and we soon will be. That's the bottom line. Mm-hmm. And uh We've got, whether it's a, a, a commercial company or a company that has a contract from NASA to build it, to me, that's all, it's all interesting, but the bottom line is a rocket with an American flag is going to launch from the coast of Florida. Yeah. That's what I'm excited about. Very cool. And my colleagues are going to get in it, 
and ride to the space station, and I'm going to see him. <laughs> That's awesome. Now, is there anything looking forward to this mission that you'd maybe like to do differently or make sure you capitalize on? Maybe something that, you know, you were in space for a, for a long time in this last long-duration space flight, but is there something that maybe you didn't get to that you'd like to do this time around? Uh, I have no real special projects. I, 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 um, you never know when it could be your last mission. I don't know what is in store for me after the flight, whether I'll still be at NASA or not. I mean, I, I, I think I will be, but you know, you never know. Um, and therefore you never know if you're going to see that window out of the cupola again. When I, on my first mission, I just assumed that I would go to space again. In my second mission, I was pretty sure I wasn't going anywhere, but and I was pretty sure that there would be another opportunity to get to space. Now I'm 50 years old. It's taken, uh, it was uh, 2009 to 13, so it's mm -hmm. four years between my first and second. It's been seven between my second and third. Um, I don't know if I have the time and, and or the health. You never know if something's going to prevent you from flying in space. So, so that's a long way of saying I'm just going to really enjoy being there and, uh, and looking out the window and seeing our magnificent planet through the cupola windows and taking pictures of, of the earth, taking pictures of the place that places that I've been to, taking pictures of the places that I want to go to, um, and calling friends and family from, from space. For some reason, people get a kick out of getting a phone call from, from space. <laughs> I have the phone numbers stored on my phone as International Space Station. So um, because of maybe it's because my time as chief when it was I regularly spoke to the space station. It's not something I get excited about anymore, but I'm excited to share that enthusiasm with others. Yeah, yeah. That's so funny that you think it's a normal thing. Oh, man. <laughs> I would be so excited if I got that phone call. Um, so, so, so along that theme, along of, of you know, you're thinking about, I don't know what the future holds. This might be my last space flight. I'm going to enjoy it. Thinking about generations of astronauts coming after you, just at the time of this recording, we just had a graduation event and had all these new class of astronauts come in that are looking forward to all kinds of exciting things, commercial crew being one of them. We talked about um, Artemis during this event, going to the moon. There's a lot to look forward to, but in your experience, you being an experienced astronaut, what would you like to say to those astronauts and to generations of astronauts coming after that um, some kind of value or lesson to take away from this and your experience? Yeah, that's a that's a good question because there's lots of aspects I could talk about, yeah. like the training, the PAO aspect of it, <laughs> the operational part. You know, what are you going to do? Um, it it's it's very um, it's easy in this job to think that you're just doing the job for ourselves. And it's taken me a lot of maturity to realize that, that we are doing this job for our country and we are doing this job for other people. And it's not about us. It's not about us as individuals or even as a collective group of astronauts. It's about what our country is doing. And we're a member of the team that, that pulls off a really cool mission for our country. And um, so to all of those that are new and that are not yet astronauts that will be, is just keep that in mind. You know, you're excited to come here, excited to 
put on a spacesuit, get in a pool, put on a spacesuit, get in a rocket, uh, walk around on some dusty place. But um, ultimately, it's about being a member of the United States of America, being a member of an international group of countries that are doing the mission and doing things that make the world better. It's an amazing lesson. Chris Cassidy, I really appreciate your time today for coming on the podcast, and best of luck on your next mission. Thanks a lot, Gary. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for sticking around. Hope you enjoyed this conversation we had with Captain Chris Cassidy just before his launch to the International Space Station. You can watch it live. Go to nasa.gov slash NTV to find the latest schedule and see it there as long as with a couple more places you can see it. Facebook will probably be streaming it and then NASA TV. You can check out this podcast and of the, some of the other episodes and the many other NASA podcasts at nasa.gov slash podcasts. Keep up with the latest on the International Space Station with nasa.gov slash ISS and the latest with the Commercial Crew program at nasa.gov slash commercial crew. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We tweet out and post on the NASA Johnson Space Center pages of Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform to submit an idea for the show. Just make sure to mention it's for Houston. We have a podcast. This episode was recorded on January 13th, 2020. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Pat Ryan, Norm Moran, Belinda Polito, John Streeter, Kelly Humphreys, and Brandy Dean. Thanks again to Captain Chris Cassidy for coming on the show. Godspeed. We'll be back next week.